As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hi, and welcome back to today's edition of the podcast. It's Justin Briley once again, sitting in for Ruth and bringing you some bonus material on the podcast today. We began that last week with Alistair's talk at a previous unbelievable conference on Jesus the Lunatic. Well, today you're going to be hearing the questions that came into him from the audience. If you can rate and review the podcast, it helps others to discover the show as well. Um, by the way, if you're interested in coming along to this year's unbelievable conference, Alistair McGrath is going to once again be our keynote speaker nearly 10 years since we had Alistair at the conference. You can find out more at unbelievable.live, but it's happening on Saturday, the 14th of May, live from the British Library in London. You can come in person or attend from anywhere online. Our theme is God Unmuted, helping the church to find its authentic voice again. We're going to be looking at your questions around living in a divided, politicised society, COVID, cancel culture, progressives versus conservatives, identity politics, all of these things that are in our news feeds frequently, often making Christians nervous about speaking up themselves. So how do we respond with grace and truth to all of this? That's what we're going to be looking at in this year's conference. As I said, Alistair McGrath, our keynote speaker, along with Lisa Fields from the uh, Jude 3 Project, Glenn Scrivener of Speak Life, Sharon Dirks from the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, Joseph D'Souza, Bishop of the Good Shepherd Church Network in India, John Wyatt, bioethicist, Phil Vischer and Sky Jatani of the Holy Post podcast and other guests to be announced. Plus, as part of your ticket, you get a place at our live Big Conversation event the same evening. Renowned brain psychologist Ian McGilchrist in conversation with Christian neuroscientist Sharon Dirks and the global launch of our brand new apologetics and theology ministry as well. So check it all out at unbelievable.live. Right now, on to today's podcast. We talked about bringing us home and going to heaven. Where's home and where's heaven in that context? Where is heaven, where is home? I mentioned earlier the parable of the prodigal son, and that is a a parable of homecoming. It's a son who feels he has forfeited his place in the family home. And then he, he goes, does his own thing, goes to the far country, and then realizes that what he had thought would satisfy doesn't. And he begins to realize, you know, even home I had a better time than here. I need to go home and face up to my father and take the consequences. And one of the points that C.S. Lewis makes um, in, for example, The Pilgrim's Regress in 1933, but also especially in the chapter on hope in mere Christianity, is that 
there is this homeland, the place where we really belong, and we, we hear its music, so to speak, even in this country. And that reminds us that this is not the place where we really belong. We're on our way somewhere else. So for Lewis, um, heaven is our homeland. It's a theme he finds in earlier Christian writers. For example, um, Cyprian of Carthage, a man who was martyred for his faith in 258, I think, um, you know, you know, had a very famous line in one of his books, heaven is our homeland. I think that's a very, very powerful thing for us to say. It's a bit like Philippians 3, which talks about um, our citizenship being in heaven. The image is that of a colony. In other words, um, a Roman colony where um, every Roman citizen would live in the colony, but they had the right of return to the home city at the end of their period of service. And Paul, in effect, is asking us to see here as a colony of heaven, and one day we're going to go home to heaven itself. So I need to give you a very long answer, but the gist of it would be that for Christians, heaven is our homeland, that we feel a sense of homesickness for heaven, if we don't entirely realize what it is, and that maybe we can begin to help others to, to sense that there is a better place and begin to work out what the implications of this might be for what they think about life. That needs a lot longer answer, but that's a very brief sketch of what I want to say. Thank you. Let's move on, please. Who would like to ask the next question? Oh, hi. Um, yeah, point three, sort of linking the cross with love. Mm. I think for a lot of atheists, perhaps the cross is not a symbol of love. It's a symbol of God being cruel and... Um, how can you sort of link that to someone who's an unbeliever for them to understand the cross as a loving act? I think one of the things we need to do here is to try and help people to see things in a different way. And certainly atheists will say, well, this just shows that Christ is a kind of, that God's a kind of cosmic child abuser. And you'll probably have come across that. And Richard Dawkins says that, for example. I think there is another way of looking at it. And it is like this. You can say, look, how do we measure the love of Christ for each of us? You remember the scene in Gethsemane. You know, in effect, if, if it's your will, take this cup away from me. If not, I'm going through with it. And what I want to say is that I think the best way of seeing this is Christ saying to, to us that this is all I have, and I'm giving it for you. I don't have to do this I am choosing to do this for you. It's, about, it's like, uh, to give a classic example, uh, greater love has no man than this, that a man should lay down his life for his friends. It's about Christ saying, I am doing this because this is how much I love you, and in that is mirrored the love of God for you. I think it's a very powerful example. Again, apologetically, when I'm trying to explain this, I'll very often pick up stories of those who have done something like that to try and help people see. I mean, the example I very often give, because I, I do a lot of preaching in Oxford, is where there are often memorials to those who died in the First World War. Um, there's one in one of the colleges, I think it's Magdalen, which is Lewis's college, of course, uh, which is a, a, a memorial to a medical officer who, in effect... Um, crawled into no man's land to bring one of the troops home. And as he brought him home and lowered him to safety, he was shot by a sniper. 
And the medical orderly was dying, but he knew the guy he brought back was going to be okay. And you can see in that self-giving love. I gave my life in order that he might live. So I think we need to get away from this cosmic child abuse stuff. It's about Christ saying, this is how much I love you, giving everything I have to enable you to live. So again, it's a different way of looking at things. I think, again, that helps people to, to see things in a much better way and begin to grasp what this is all about. Thank you for that. Thank you. Um, I work with a lot of people who've actually suffered in the hands of people they trust. And I wonder what kind of suggestion you would um, give to us as a way of connecting to people and to, um, to God as a loving and trusting God. Thank you. You're quite right. I mean, there are many people who feel that they've been betrayed by those who are close to them. And it's a very, very distressing experience indeed, because one of the questions it raises is, who can I trust? So I think you're absolutely right. This is a very significant question for many people who've been damaged or distressed by, by people who've let them down. I emphasized that when we look at Christ, we are in effect looking at his story and beginning to realize there's a, a connection between his story and our story. And I've spoken to people who are very much in that situation. And I've said to them, look, you realize Christ was betrayed by someone who was close to him, someone who he ought to have been able to trust. And try to make the point that Christ knows, Christ understands what it's like to go through that. And also, I think, brings home this deep question who is there who we really can trust? And one of the reasons why I personally find Christianity so powerful, so persuasive is, here is a God who can be trusted, who doesn't shaft us, if I can put it very, very crudely, but rather who shows in word and in deed that he is utterly committed to us. So I think that's a way of beginning to, to make connections between people in that situation and some of the gospel themes. And certainly I could point to individuals who have just felt that that is a point at which God seemed to understand them, that somehow he knew what I was going through. And that was a very important turning point for a lot of them in what became their personal walk of faith. Now, again, there's a lot more I need to say in response to that point, but that's how I'd start to give a full answer. Thank you. Thank you. Um, in the context of um, the love of Christ, I always wonder about the role of Judas because someone had to betray Christ. And if it wasn't Judas, it was going to be someone else. A, on the face of it, someone was doomed to go to hell. Is that a fair statement to make? And if it is, uh, where does that put the ultimate love of Christ in the context of the character of Judas? Thank you. I appreciate that very perceptive question. I, I think there are two things I'd want to say here. One is that um, the New Testament makes it clear that Christ's, Christ's crucifixion was not an accident. In one sense, this had to happen. 
And in effect, it's saying, look, this was not an accident. It had to happen, and obviously someone had to do it, but someone chose to do it. And certainly if you look at um, the great theological debates about this, you, you will find that it's very much about this idea, look, in one sense, it wasn't that someone was predestined to do it, someone chose to do it, but that God knew that was going to happen and was able to bring good out of what would otherwise be a tragic and meaningless event. Now, there's a lot more to it than that, but I mean, I, I want to say that, in effect, if I can put it very, very simply as a slogan, the necessity of the crucifixion does not abrogate individual responsibility which led to that. But we also have to ask, you know, what happened to Judas? And I, I don't know is the answer. And one, again, another theological debate which many reflect on is whether, whether Judas might have got a second chance. And I don't know the answer to that. What I do know is, though, that, that Jesus nowhere expresses hatred towards Judas. If anything, it's just immense sadness. And I don't know where Judas goes or anything like that, but I do know that... Um, that Christ does not, uh, so to speak, take revenge on him or anything like that. It's much more an immense sadness. It is him, but also a realization that this is something that needs to be done, and I'm going to make sure I do it. Now, again, I really need to give a lecture on that theme, and I've kind of just sketched very briefly a response, but it's a very good question. Thank you. Hi there. Um, how do we present a credible case for Christ to the Muslim community who don't believe, one, that he was the son of God, and two, that his crucifixion even happened, took place? I think, again, that's a very good, very powerful question. And I've certainly had these kind of discussions. I'll share with you some of the things I've said and see if these make any sense to you. The first point I make is this, and I'm going to use a, a word of jargon, which I apologize for, but the credentialization of Jesus. In other words, what is it that qualifies him to speak about God? It's a very important question. And one of the points I would make is this. I would say to our Muslim friends, look, I'm not asking you to accept this yet, but I want you to listen to this because this is how Christians see this. The reason that we Christians trust Jesus and say this is someone who speaks reliably about God and shows us what God is like is the resurrection. And for Christians, the resurrection is about a demonstration that Jesus is indeed authorized to speak on behalf of God, to do things in which we see God revealed. And therefore, for Christians, Jesus is special in that there is something about him that qualifies him to bring us salvation, to disclose what God is like. Now, again, I said to my Muslim friends, look, I'm, I'm sure you don't accept this, but listen to me. The point I want to make is that everyone who talks about having a revelation from God needs to be able to show why we should trust that revelation. What is it about the bearer of that revelation which makes us say, this guy is to be trusted? And the New Testament is completely coherent on this. Jesus is demonstrated by the resurrection to be the Son of God. It's not that Christians have said, oh, I've got a good idea. Let's say Jesus is the Son of God because then, you know, then he's important. 
It's that this is how the evidence has to be interpreted. And the resurrection plays a central role in that. You think of, for example, um, Romans 1, which talks about Jesus being demonstrated to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Or you think, for example, of um, the encounter with, G- with doubting Thomas, where Thomas sees the risen Christ and says, my Lord and my God. That's about a response to the way things actually are. So I would say to, to, to the Muslim friends I have, look, I can see you might have difficulties with this, but I'm afraid I would have to ask you very much the same question, and that's this. How do you know you can trust your revelation? For Christians, it's what Jesus did and what was done to Jesus that makes us realize this guy is special. Then some way God makes himself known in and through Christ in a way that we say this is something that can be trusted. So I I often find that when I, in effect, say something like that, they begin to say something to me, well, actually, we can see the point you're making, and we need to do some thinking here. But I think it's very important to make the point that the the New Testament vision of Jesus is not sort of, you know, A, B, C, and D, as if these are separate items. It's a coherent, consistent picture of Jesus in which everything hangs together, including the resurrection and Jesus' ability to save and to reveal what God is like. So again, that's a very brief summary of a big question, but for me it's a very good question, and I think there is a good answer we can give. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to ask you this question. I'm very nervous, and I've written the question that I would like to ask you. Alistair, first of all, I'm honored to sit here today and to listen diligently to your experience and intellectual down-to-earth lecture. You have really inspired me today, and your humbleness and sense of humor is encouraging. I'm a born-again Christian, But I have a lot of questions um, that people ask me who are Christians or who wants to become a Christian but find it difficult to settle into the right church because there are so many so-called churches today. How would you encourage someone that really, really loves God but wants to be in the right place to worship God? Thank you. Well, again, a great question and thank you for stating it so clearly. Um, I I, I wrestled with this myself, Um, and I'll tell you some of the things that I have found helpful. I think, first of all, um, you know, it's very important to make the point that when you come to faith, as I did many years ago, you've got an awful lot to discover. I don't know if you ever read um, Bride's Head Revisited by Evelyn Waugh. It doesn't matter if you haven't, but Evelyn Waugh was someone who came to faith very unexpectedly in 1930. And he wrote a letter to a friend describing what happened. He said, you know, I've suddenly stepped out of a kind of shadowy world into a real world, and now I can begin to explore this new world limitlessly. And he was very, very excited because he was exploring this new territory. And that's, that's the way it is when you're a new Christian, that you have, you have so many wonderful things to discover, and you need people to help you in that process of discovery. And it may be close friends who are Christians who are able to answer questions, who are able to help you make sense of Scripture. It may well be a church which helps you through preaching, through worship, and encourages you to go further in your faith. 
So I think it's very important if you're a new Christian, you don't stay isolated. You need friends who will help you along your way. How do we check our churches? Well, um, that again would require quite a long and might be quite a diplomatic answer. Um, but I think part of the answer might be that, you know, we, we want to have a, a, a church which is very grounded in Scripture, which is very attentive to the questions that young Christians ask and is prepared to try and help them think these things through. And certainly, from my own experience, um, I know that when I came to faith, I had many questions, and I felt I really ought to try and work these through rather than ignore them. And you know, that's why I'm an apologist, because I worked out answers for myself that I can then try and give to other people. So I think you, you're looking for a church that is scriptural, that is welcoming, that is accepting of people who are finding their way and need help on that journey. So I think that it's a wonderful question, and I, I obviously would like to be able to give a list of names that might be recommended, but that would be completely against the spirit of this conference. But I will just say that, um, that one of the things that I found most important is to welcome the questions that young Christians ask. Because if we don't try and engage with those, we may give the impression that answers cannot be given. I think it's very important to help them discover those answers because it will help them become more effective apologists in the future as well as help them grow in their own faith. Thank you for that. We have time for one more, then we've got to break. And we have somebody waving their, lots of people waving their hands in the balcony. So let's get a microphone up there and see who we pick up on. That's going to be the first person, I think, nearest the end. Uh, my question is about the love of God as, or the love of Christ as expressed on the cross, uh, which you referred to earlier. Um, does the physical death or crucifixion of Christ, can we look at it as the full expression of, of Jesus Christ for mankind, or is there more? Like, how do we relate his carrying the sin of man? as part of that suffering, rather than the physical death, which many would have suffered in that time, in the same way, maybe even worse. Thank, Thank you. you. And again, a very good question. Um, let me, to try and answer this, let me go back to 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul sets out the gospel as it was given to him. And he talks about Christ dying, in effect, for our sins. You know, that, that's extremely important. Not just dying, though that is important, because in effect it is saying he gave up everything. But there is also this interpretation. He died for us. He died for our sins. He died so that we might be forgiven. And I think, you know, one of the things we need to realize is that as we focus on Christ's death, it's not as if there's simply one short, simple answer, like he bore our sins. That is true, but there is more to it than that. 
And so, you know, Christ is bearing our sins. He is someone who's dying so that the remedy of sin might be there, so we might be healed. He's dying to show the love of God for us. These are all there in the cross. And part of the process of Christian discipleship is beginning to realize just how rich and meaningful the death of Christ is. And certainly, when I became a Christian many years ago, I began saying, look, Christ died for my sins. And that was right, but it wasn't the full picture. I'm beginning to realize, you know, it's all about showing the love of God. It's all about, in effect, Christ healing me, renewing me. It's all about Christ giving me hope in the face of death. I think a part of our personal journey of faith is about appreciating the full richness of Christ's death and resurrection. And yes, it is those things you've just mentioned. It's about physical death, and that's bad enough. It's also about all these other things, which mean that the cross opens up ways of thinking that you and I can embrace personally, but also hopefully begin to explain to those outside the church who are saying, well, look, Tell me something about this guy, Jesus. What, what difference does he make? And I think that uh, I'm very hopeful that some of the things we've been exploring in this afternoon's sessions might help open up the richness of the Christian understanding of Jesus Christ to a world which I think very much needs to know the difference he makes, but hasn't yet quite figured out what it is. And what I need to say to you in closing, to all of us, is that each of us here this afternoon could be the person who opens up for the very first time the significance of Jesus Christ for our friends and neighbors who are wondering what it's all about, and you could turn a light on in their minds. Thank you for listening. That was Alistair McGrath's presentation on Jesus the Lunatic at Unbelievable Conference back in 2013. But you can hear from Alistair again at this year's conference, 2022. He's going to be with us on Saturday, the 14th of May, along with a stellar lineup of other contributors at the British Library in London. Now, you can join in person on the 14th of May, or you can join online from anywhere in the world. God Unmuted is our theme this year. Hope you can be with us for that. Check out the ticketing at unbelievable.live. The link is with today's show and we'll see you next time.